Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 427 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff. I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, the birds are chirping early in the morning as I record this. It is summer, my absolute favorite season. Hope it's a really good season for you. I'm going to talk about that at the end of the episode and what I'm thinking about segment, how to use your summer to restore yourself, just a couple of ideas. And today's guest is Allison Fallon. She's going to help with that too. And today's episode is brought to you by uh, MediShare. The best alternative to traditional health insurance is MediShare. When you save an average of 50% or more on monthly healthcare costs, you probably want to check out MediShare.com slash carry. And by Generis, you can better understand your church's financial standing and learn what opportunities you have to further increase donor engagement. Get your free Generosity Pulse report by going to generis.com slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S dot com slash carry. Well, Allison Fallon is going to talk about how to unlock your brain and leadership by writing things down. I first heard of her on the Donald Miller podcast. Don had her on the Business Made Simple podcast. I thought she was really great. And she's an author, a speaker, and CEO, and she has helped other CEOs, Olympic gold medalists, politicians, and many others unlock their brains and leadership by learning how to write things down. She's seen leaders get freed from anxiety, depression, and past trauma by learning a specific form of writing for just 20 minutes a day, four days in a row, and she unpacks exactly what that can do for you. I was just texting a friend this morning who's dealing with like anxiety that is showing up on his body. Um, just like, you know, not feeling well. And this happens over and over again. The mind-body connection is huge. She is the author of The Power of Writing It Down, as well as the book Packing Light and Indestructible. She's a speaker and the founder of Find Your Voice, a community that supports anyone who wants to write anything. And she's helped leaders of multinational corporations, stay-at-home moms, Olympic gold medalists, recovering addicts, politicians, CEOs, and prison inmates use the Find Your Voice method as a powerful tool. She has lived all over the country, but now lives in Nashville, and you can follow her at allisonfallon.com. So leaders are tired. I'm going to talk about that at the end of the podcast. It's been a crazy season navigating the world the past year, and they need companies they can trust. 66% of Americans across every income level say health insurance is a major financial stressor. MediShare is the best alternative to traditional health insurance that allows Christians to share the burdens in the form of medical bills. MediShare is the most trusted healthcare sharing ministry with over 415,000 members nationwide. The typical family saves on average 50% or more on healthcare costs when they switch, so that equals $500 per month on average. MediShare members have access, and this is the thing I'm excited about, to free telehealth and telecounseling. They're unlimited services. You can join at any time and have access to 900,000 providers. MediShare has a 27-year track record, shared more than $4 billion since 1993. If you want to learn how you can save, it only takes two minutes. So head on over to MediShare.com. That's M-E-D-I-S-H-A-R-E.com slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y. Well, speaking of money, the question you probably are asking yourself is, how do I pay for this? And that's often the question that stands between your current resources and what your ministry is trying to accomplish. Sometimes that's getting from, you know, week to week. Other times it's like, wow, we have an opportunity to get a building. 
we can't get that building. Or, um, hey, I could hire new staff if only I had the money. Wouldn't it be super helpful to have clarity around your current financial standing and knowing what opportunities for giver engagement and growth exist and what you can begin to do by moving the needle on generosity? I always think the best time to deal with money is when you're not asking for money. So that's what the Generosity Pulse Report will help you do. It's a snapshot of the health of your culture of stewardship and generosity. A Generis team member will help you interpret your giving data and assess the long-term health and potential of your church's giving. Leaders don't always know what to look at when they're looking at their giving data, and that's where Generis can help you see things you might otherwise miss. So you can schedule your free generosity report today. It's free. Just go to generis.com slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S. It's like Genesis with an R, dot com slash carry. Okay, with all that said, let's jump into a really fascinating conversation with Allison Fallon. Allie, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, great to have you on the show today. Thanks. I'm honored to be here. This is fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got your book and I heard you on Donald Miller's podcast. I've been listening to Business Made Simple before it was Business Made Simple when it was StoryBrand. And I thought, man, it'd be fun to actually have a connection with you. So I love the way you kind of open your latest book, The Power of Writing It Down. For those of you who are watching on YouTube, you can see it right here. It's a great book. There's a lot in here. But you talk about the hang-up. I love the way you phrased it. And it just sounds like almost every leader I'm talking to these days <laughs> is, is sucked into the hang-up. What is the hang-up? Yeah. The hangup is that feeling that we get so often and leaders are perfect. I mean, the perfect fit to this feeling. I think leaders probably have this feeling more often than other people do, but where you get the sense that there's something more to life or something, um, something that you're missing or something else that you could achieve or that you could be giving or, but then you kind of talk yourself out of it. You think like, no, I should just be more grateful. I've got a pretty good life. I've got a good thing going on. I should count, count my blessings and just sort of sit up and shut down and sit up or shut up and sit down. I know what you mean. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I talk about in the book how, you know, we have these visions and dreams of what life could actually be like, of what we could really contribute to the world. And sometimes we feel like we can't actualize those in real life. And so the hang up is that feeling where we feel like, am I crazy? Am I am I just making this up? Or um, could my vision, my dream actually become a reality? Yeah. And you talk about like the term that I'll use often in my writing is self-medicating. So you end up with that third glass of wine or, you yeah. know, whatever. So it, it really kind of, does it translate into an angst or like what happens when you don't feel particularly fulfilled? Well, I think especially leaders and visionaries, when we have these big visions and don't feel like we can actualize them in the world, we, yeah, I, angst is a good word, frustration. There's just mm. this sense that that part of me that believes that that reality could exist, I have to silence it in some way. And in order to do that, I'm going to use those medicators. So it's TV, it's Instagram, it's wine, it's video games, it's, you know, for some of us, it's church or um, yeah. uh, like friends. I'll just do more or, church. Yeah. yeah. I mean, anything that you do that just sort of distracts you from reality. I mean, one thing that I use all the time is listening to podcasts because I, I actually really love listening to podcasts and I don't think podcasts are bad, but I can tell that I'm getting into that space when I can't have any quiet time in my life. When anytime that there's a blank space, I have to fill it with noise. So I'm always like picking up my phone and looking for a new podcast to listen to. Again, nothing wrong with podcasts, but you can you can kind of sense the energy shift from doing something because it's actually really feeding you and filling you to doing something because it's 
numbing you or keeping you from, from, you know, feeling what you're experiencing in the moment. Yeah, that's a really good distinction because we often think of self-medication as bad things, right? Things totally. that would be like illegal or, or not according to our value system. But sometimes like, you know, workaholism could be that. I'll just, 100%. I'll just work some more, right? Yes. Work isn't bad. Yeah. It's, just, it's got its place in your life. Yep, exactly. Okay, so people get this angst. People get this, this hang up. And you're suggesting that there's something therapeutic about what you call writing it down, like taking mm-hmm. up the practice of writing. Yeah. How are the two related? It's a really interesting connection. Yeah, I mean, the power of writing is that it puts you in touch with that voice inside of you that knows the truth. So that the voice is the voice that's telling you that this vision that you're dreaming of, this reality that you're imagining that isn't a reality in your real life right this minute, but that it could be a reality. You know, it's sort of like, I think of it like your soul is calling you in this certain direction and, um, and, and what writing will do, the power of writing down what's going on in your day, writing down your story, writing down your visions and your dreams is it puts you back in touch with that voice. It puts you into alignment with yourself so that you can see what's, what's true, not necessarily what's true in this very moment, but what's real for you and what you, you are here trying to create. So we have a lot of content creators who are listening to this podcast. We have preachers, we have public speakers, we have entrepreneurs, CEOs who have to like, they're like, well, that's great. Like my job is to write stuff down. Are you talking about something different here a little bit? Yeah, I'm, I'm delineating here because I'm a writer too. I've written three books of my own. I've written a bunch of books for other people. I've spent most of the last 10 years of my career helping and supporting other authors to get their work out in the world. But there's a difference between the writing that we do for our profession and this type of writing that I'm inviting people to do. The data calls this type of writing expressive writing. And I find a lot of us don't have any clue how to do that sort of expressive writing where what we know how to do is the type of writing we were taught how to do in school for better or for worse. And for some of us, that type of writing we were taught how to do in school, some of us feel like, oh, I'm pretty good at that. And I can produce something that kind of gets attention or gets a message out or, or, you know, explains something to people in a really bite-sized way. And that's those of us who are like, you know, podcast creators or book writers, or, you know, even just writing Instagram captions that there's a certain sense of um, accomplishment and validation that you can get from that. And that's, that's no, there's nothing wrong with that. But the type of writing I'm talking about is a totally different type of writing. So for anyone who's listening, who thinks I'm not really a writer, I'm not that good at writing. I have terrible spelling. I have terrible grammar. You know, expressive writing doesn't require you to have good grammar or good spelling or to know how to compose a five paragraph essay. And for those of us listening who are thinking, I'm actually a pretty good writer. I, I, you know, I see myself as a writer. I can take an idea and, and write it down in a way that's really interesting and helpful to other people. This type of writing is, is going to stretch you in a different kind of way. And it's also going to give you a gift that the other kind of writing can't give you. Yeah, this isn't your keynote speech. It's not your weekend sermon and it's not your vision talk for your company, right? Exactly. You're, like do all that stuff, but you, you're, you're saying there's something else. Yes, 100%. Okay, so can you define expressive writing for us? Like, is yeah, expressive writing is, is writing about your deepest thoughts and feelings about a particular topic. It can be absolutely any topic, but that's the simple definition is writing your deepest thoughts and feelings about a topic. Okay, so can you give us a little framework for that? I mean, obviously you've written sure. a whole book, several hundred pages, but like yeah. give, us, give us the elevator pitch on what 
if, you know, I had had two minutes with you, tell yeah. me what expressive writing is. Well, the first thing that I would say to you before I even explain what expressive writing is, yeah. is I would say that the data shows that 20 minutes a day for four days in a row spent expressive writing can dramatically improve your mood. It can also improve your immune system. When they did uh, uh, studies around this, they saw that the control group visited the doctor 50% less often for up to six months after the study ended for upper respiratory infections and flu, meaning that their, their immune systems were actually functioning better because they had written regularly for four days in a row for 20 minutes at a time. So, you know, if we just boil this down to the very simplest version of this, it means that every six months, if you stopped for four days in a row, so for part of a week, and you sat down for 20 minutes on each of those days, and you wrote your deepest thoughts and feelings about what was going on in your life, you could see an improved mood, an improved immune system. The data also shows increased uh, levels of happiness in romantic relationships. The data shows people are more empathetic. It shows they're happier with their jobs. They get paid more. I mean, I could go on and on and on about the kind of benefit that people receive from entering into this process of writing. So I think, you know, I like people to hear that that data is there. Once you have an experience with the writing, you don't even really need to know that the data is there because the experience is so real. It's the kind of uh, emotional or spiritual experience where once you've done it once, you're like, I want to do that again. But if you haven't had that experience before, sometimes it can be a bit intimidating. And especially if you're one of those people I talked about, who's like, I have terrible grammar. I'm such a bad speller. I got bad grades all through English class. I encourage people like that, you know, as much as anyone to come to this process with an open mind and an open heart, because you really don't have to be a quote unquote good writer in order to get the the benefits that writing yeah. can provide. Or this whole idea I've said at different times in my life, I'm not really a journaler, right? Like I'll write on sure. my website, I'll write a keynote, I'll, I'll do whatever, but I'm not really a journaler. So it's, it's more like that. Well, and this isn't even really journaling. The type of writing that I'm teaching in this book is journaling is just sort of like writing about what what happened to you today. And what I'm asking for people to do in this type of writing is to go a step deeper, not just what happened to you. Ask like one of the the prompts that I teach in the book, I call the infinity prompt. Mm -hmm. And I talk about choosing a situation from your life that feels charged. So a situation that has some energy around it. And that could be something as simple as the guy who cut you off in traffic today. It could be something much more uh, like deeper and more traumatic, like the loss of a loved one earlier on in your life. But you pick something that has a little bit of an electric charge to it. And then you not just write what happened, you do write the facts of the situation, but you also write what your thoughts were about the situation. So what were the stories that you made up in the moment when this happened? You know, let's just say that you were a young child and you lost a parent or something like that. What were the stories that you made up in the moment about losing the parent? What did you tell yourself? How did you soothe yourself? How did you calm yourself? Like, what, what were the voices that were going on in your head? And then how did that make you feel? What was the emotional environment that that created in your body? Do you still uh, feel in touch with that emotional environment? Do you find that that emotional environment comes up for you still now? Um, how do those stories that you made up about that situation still play out in your present day life, even though the circumstances have changed? And this is one of the ways that writing helps us peel back the layers on our life. And it it allows us to see, and I can talk about the cognitive behavioral model, but this is based in, in psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. It allows us to see how so much of what we are experiencing in our lives, we are creating. And the writing process just allows us to see that and then to reroute it so that we can create a different reality. Okay. I definitely want to talk about, like, I want to unpack the infinity prompt, but I want to go back to what you hinted at because 
you know, you just very quickly and, and, you know, articulately went over a whole bunch of like medical things. We have a lot of physician friends and uh, just where we live and, and uh, some people who go to our church that we hang out with. And like, I'm amazed. I always thought you went to a doctor because, you know, your arm broke or whatever. But like, I would say 50%, I'm pulling this figure out of the air of what my physician friends deal with isn't really a medical problem. It is, it has medical implications, implications. Yeah. but it's like you're stressed or yeah. you're exhausted or you're whatever. So I, I wrote a book that's coming out this fall called At Your Best. And yeah. I did a bit of research into the link between medical problems and um, anxiety, yeah. overwhelm, overcommitment, overwork. I was shocked, like reading peer-reviewed papers. And I've got like a couple of pages that kind of... <laughs> play it out and at your best. Yeah. Like, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's everything from heart attack, stroke to like, it's, it's crazy. So let's, let's, cause you've, you really go into a lot of detail in different places in the book about the link between our, our health and our, that angst, that, uh, that hang up, that like all that stuff that's buried inside that expressive writing can get out. So what are, just so people who might be tempted to go, yeah, 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 that's for someone else. What are some of the symptoms? Like what are some of the benefits symptoms? So first I want to say that we have done such a terrible disservice in the modern Western world to separate the physical body from the emotional, spiritual, that whatever you want to call that, you can call it a spirit or a soul or, um, or, you know, even just your, your physical and your mental to, to think that those two things are separate, we have just done ourselves an incredible disservice. And I think that's what you're you're touching on that, mm-hmm. you know, you think about what happens to you when you're scared, your heart races. Um, what happens to you when you're nervous, your hands get sweaty. So to think that we don't have physical reactions to emotional realities, is just a bizarre disconnection that I, I'm not even mm-hmm. totally sure how we've gotten there. Um, but, you know, writing has a way of bringing those things back together. It has a way of putting us in touch with the things that are true even if our brains tell us that they're not true. For example, um, I'll have a lot of clients tell me when they start working through our journaling process, they'll they'll write things down on the page and they'll be like, oh, I didn't even know that I thought that. I, I, I hmm. wouldn't have told you that I felt that way. What's happening is picking up, act of picking up a pen and putting it to the paper is helping you access another part of your brain that you don't access very often. We live most of our lives out of our prefrontal cortex. It's a part of our brain that's very important. We need this part of our brain. It's the higher level thinking part of our brain. But a lot of the old experiences of our lives, the the traumas that we've experienced, the pain that we've experienced, the road activities are are in a part of our brain called our limbic system that we just don't think about or access that often. It's like, I talk about it in the book, like the the set of plans for your house that are just out in the garage. Like, why would you need to go pull out that set of blueprints? Um, You're living in your house. And so you don't think about it. You don't go there and, and check on it. But if you had a problem with the house, if the plumbing broke or something like that, you would need to go and get the plans. Mm-hmm. So translate that to our lives. When you bump into a, a circumstance or a moment in your life, when you just think like, this isn't working for me anymore. Something's broken here. That feeling, the hang up where you're like, I'm I'm trying to do a thing and I'm frustrated and I'm not getting anywhere. And I keep trying to tell myself to, you know, to just be more grateful. And that's not really working. When you get to that place in your life, writing can be a way to sort of look under the hood and say, what are the thoughts, ideas, stories, et cetera, that are buried in my subconscious mind that I'm not thinking about that often, but that are driving the daily realities of my life. There is an inevitable connection between the blueprints in your garage and the house that you're actually living in. 
So writing allows us to do that. I don't know if I answered your question, but I no, you answered it really, it. really well. Okay. And you know, there's hardly a leader listening to this podcast who wouldn't remember being in a meeting, probably in the last week or two, where their heart rate got elevated. They're they're you know they were nervous going into it. And you're right; it's so easy to dismiss that and go, "I got this." Like, and then yeah. the next thing you know, you're anxious, you're depressed, you're going into your doctor for a diagnosis, or you live yeah. with this undiagnosed pain. You, you and draw, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll tell a really personal story. I yeah, don't talk please. about this in the book, but I've written several blog posts about it. I dealt for years with crippling food allergies for over mm-hmm. 10 years. There were maybe five or six, ten, somewhere five to 10 foods that I could eat without feeling any pain. And they had to be very bland foods. I had to follow a really specific regimen and I would have reactions to, if I, if I ventured outside of that at all, I would have these crazy reactions um, that were frustrating and embarrassing. And I, you know, felt like I had tried everything. I had been to nutritionists and I had been to doctors and I'd done a thousand tests and every test was coming back negative. And, um, finally I was in a therapy session maybe five years ago. And my therapist said to me, have you ever considered that this could be not all physical? Hmm. And, uh, For me, that was the first time that I had ever considered that it wouldn't be physical because we've done such a good job in the modern Western world of separating the physical and the emotional. So I thought this had to be a physical problem and I was going to solve it in a physical way. I needed a drug. I needed a, I needed to change my diet. I needed, you know, some sort of magic cure pill or something to fix it. And she suggested to me that it might be emotional. And she said, why don't you try writing about it? And she gave me a couple of different writing assignments. One of the writing assignments was to write from the pain that I felt whenever I would get sick. I started doing that and I'm telling you, it was like a miraculous spiritual experience where I I started to draw these connections between a trauma in my childhood, how I felt as a kid and as a teenager, as a young young woman um, in the world and how I would feel when I would feel sick. I would feel isolated. I would feel alone. No one saw me. No one understood. No one could get this. I'm the only one. And I'm like, there has to be a connection there. And I wrote about it for years and years and years. And um, as I wrote about it, I started to feel like I could start to reintroduce some of these foods. I just started to feel kind of inspired or led to try eating some of them again. And I won't bore you with all of the details, but um, I'll tell you that, you know, now this is five years later and there's not a single food that I can't eat uh, that I want to eat. You know, a mantra that I say to myself. You're not boring me in the least. What was that? I said, you're not boring me in the least. Okay. This is this is fascinating. And so many people are flashing through my mind that I know and I care about who've got similar issues. And it's like, okay, we're not going to have grains. We're not going to have dairy. We're not yeah. going to do this. We're not going to do that. Can you draw that out a little bit more to the degree that you're comfortable? Like, how did you go? Because that's, that's very interesting that write about how you're feeling mm-hmm. when what, when you're wanting to have a food or having a food and you can't, and how did that get you back to your childhood? That, that is very yeah. interesting to me. Well, what would happen to me is I would accidentally eat something. Like I would go out to dinner, for example, which was always a very uncomfortable situation for me. So I'd go out mm-hmm. to dinner and I would ask the waiter, this was like 10 years of doing this. And if you have food allergies or anything, you know, this experience very well, but where you're like, okay, I'm going to be the high maintenance one. I'm going to have to ask you a thousand questions about what's in the sauce. And can I have this? And can you please Mm -hmm. bring it to me plain and not, or put the sauce on the side or whatever. So I'd go through that whole experience. I'd come home. I would have eaten something that made me sick. I would think I did everything right. I'd come home, I'd get sick. And so I would write the, the assignment that the therapist had given to me was to write from the feeling of pain that I was feeling. I would have these like terrible, sharp pains in my stomach. And then I would have lots of digestive distress. 
So I just started writing from the pain and the pain would tell me things like, nobody understands you. You're the only one who feels like this. Mm. And when I write, when I would write stuff down like that, uh, first of all, uh, there's the more logical part of my brain that's like, that's overdramatic. Give me a break. Of course, people yeah. understand you. You're not the only person to ever experience this. But this is one of those circumstances where the writing will allow you to tell a truth that you would be un- un- otherwise unable to admit to yourself. And that truth can be the key to unlocking what's really going on with you. So me writing that down helped me to see that the connection to me as a five-year-old girl who would think nobody knows what's going on with you. Nobody understands what you're going through. And as, as soon as I started to see those connections, it helped me. It, it, it really um, motivated me and invited me deeper into the process and helped me to continue to write about what I was experiencing. And it, you know, it took a couple of years. It wasn't a, an instant fix, but it did help me to draw many of those parallels and ultimately helped me to heal that wound. Did completely. you process that on your own? Did you pick that up with a counselor? You talk a lot about CBT, cognitive behavioral yeah. therapy, and we've had lots of those on this show. Yes. How, how did, what was the, what were the next steps? I did some of both. I think the beauty of a tool like writing is that if you've never been to a therapist and if you, maybe you have sort of a, um, stigma around therapy, mm-hmm. I'm hoping, you know, more and more. Sadly, think, some people and, still do, but yeah, I'm in. I, but I think yeah. some of us just sort of feel like, um, my, I, my dad's a therapist and I grew up with therapy around me, but I think I kind of thought even as a young woman, um, therapy is for people who are like really wounded and hurting and broken. And I didn't see myself that way. And so, um, it wasn't until later in my life that I, that I started my own therapeutic process, but writing is a way that for anybody, regardless of whether you're already seeing a therapist or whether you think like, that's not really for you, that you can kind of dip your toe in the water of peeling back the, the layers of the onion that are you. So whether you're seeing a therapist or whether you're not, you can use writing as this tool to kind of do a little bit of your own therapy. And I'm a huge advocate for also pairing writing along with other forms of therapy. I've been in and out of therapy for my entire adult life. I've Mm -hmm. been to onsite, which is like an intense, intensive uh, therapeutic program here, right outside of Nashville, where I live. Um, I've done cognitive behavioral therapy. I've done experiential therapy. I've done EMDR. I've done all the things. So, you know, I think like, Absolutely, anybody can benefit from bringing on a professional and hiring a therapist. And also, writing is this amazing ancillary tool that you can bring alongside of you to help you expedite the process that you're in in a therapist's office. For example, if I go to therapy every Tuesday for an hour and my therapist and I talk about something that's going on with me, and she asks me a question or asks me to reflect on something, I can go home and write about that all week. And because writing helps me to get really honest with myself, I can come back to her the next week and go, do you know what I discovered about myself this week? I discovered this about myself. And do you know what that made me think about? It made me make this connection to this other thing in my life. And so I'm not just waiting for the therapist to kind of show me what to do next and and fix my problem. I'm actually becoming an active participant in solving whatever problem it is I'm facing in my life. That's so good. Hey, if I'm asking two particular questions, just let me know. But so you did this for a couple of years. Was there a moment, like what led you to, hey, I'm going to try these foods again. And again, I got lots of people close to me that I'm like, oh yeah, this has been their issue for years. And almost everyone's like, who eats normally anymore? Nobody does, right? Some of that's weight and some of that's sensitivities. And so I'm just really curious, like, was it just one day you thought, I think this is safe? Did you have setbacks? Like what, what happened next? I definitely have had setbacks along the way, but for me, the shift was, I don't know that it was like a single moment, but there was definitely a shift, a period of time 
when I actually began to believe in my bones that this issue was not purely physical. I started to see so completely the connection to the emotional that it gave me a relative sense of safety that I'm going to try this and I might have some physical reactions, but the physical reactions are not the final say. Um, The physical reactions will give me sort of, it's like a conversation that I'm having with my body where it gives me more information that I can then use to continue to create this transformation for myself. And I started really, really small. I mean, I'm not joking. I would like cut a blueberry in half because I couldn't eat any fruit. Um, so I would cut a blueberry in half and I would eat half a blueberry. And I would tell myself, I had mantras that I would tell myself, and these would come to me through my writing, but I would tell myself, um, you know, I received this food. My body knows exactly what to do with it. It's going to take in the nutrients and let go of the rest. And I would say that to myself over and over and over again. And as I increased the amount of food that I was eating, you know, then it was like half a carrot and like a half a banana or whatever. And as I increased the amount of food that I was eating, I would have times where I would have small symptoms and I would just go over that mantra again and again in my head. And my body knows exactly what to do with this food. It's going to take in the nutrients. It's going to get rid of the rest. And if I had symptoms, I would write about them, try to make more connections to what was really going on with me, accept the fact that this was all part of the process. And, you know, it took me a little bit of time, but here I am. And I'm telling you, I I still sometimes will do the, this thing in my head before I eat something that I feel like is, you know, like I'll eat a donut or something. And for years I couldn't eat gluten and I'll, I'll eat the donut. And I'm like, my, this is really good for me. My body knows exactly what to do with this. It's going to take the nutrients and let go of the rest. That is really cool. You know, it's interesting. And I, I haven't had the food sensitivities like a lot of other people have, but that really resonates with me because I've thought about my own emotional growth as a leader, becoming a better leader I've been married for over three decades, so Mm. there's always work to be done in that department. And it is in, it's what John Calvin said, without knowledge of God, there's no knowledge of self, but without knowledge of self, there's no knowledge of God. And as I get to know myself better and I connect the dots in the morning, in my own case, through prayer, through journaling, through that kind of thing, I'm like, oh, that might be connected to this. And it is this interplay between like there's prayers of confession, but then there's also just like, okay, what was that? And you try to unpack it and then you grow and you try it again and you make a mistake and you're like, okay, that didn't get it right that time. So you just kind of go back. That that really makes sense. Cause I think we live in that world where, you know, we want the story to be. And then one day I went to an all you can eat buffet yeah. and I just dove in head first. And now it's been a hundred percent, but that that resonates a lot more true to life with I think a lot of people's experience. So yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. I hope it helps people. Yeah. So you 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 pin not writing it down to things like anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. trauma, and pain. Anything else you want to unpack? Because I think we're learning, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but from what I know and what I've read, what I've listened to, we are learning so much about the brain in the mm-hmm. last 20 years. It's just been like a revolution of what we understand about ourselves. Uh, any other links there between that angst, that hang up and writing it down and the, all that, that stuffed in stuff we don't pay attention to. Yeah. And I mean, I think comes. it might be a good time for me to talk a little bit about the cognitive behavioral model. And you said yeah, you've had a few do. other guests on who have, you know, who come from this perspective. So maybe yeah, that yeah. you've, your listeners have heard this before, but the basic, the cognitive behavioral model is a basic therapeutic model that a lot of 
modern therapists draw from. And the basic idea is that you have thoughts that live in your brain that create an emotional environment in your body that cause you to respond or react in a certain way that create an outcome that you're getting. And so, you know, when you come to a therapist and you sit on the couch and they say, tell me what's going on with you. And you're like, I'm really having problems in my marriage. Then the cognitive behavioral therapist is trying to understand, they're trying to back the train up. Like, well, what's the thought that you're having in your head that's creating the emotional environment that's causing you or your your spouse to respond in a certain way that's creating this circumstance that you're in that you don't want to be in. And it's, you know, there are a lot of pieces, again, like this is not um, like the depths of brain science. This is just one model that and one lens that we can look through. But I do find the cognitive behavioral model to be really helpful as we think about how important, what an important role writing can play in helping us do things like decrease our anxiety and lift us out of, you know, seasons like small bouts of depression and that sort of thing is that when we experience that kind of an emotional environment, let's say the emotional environment is anxiety, um, it's helpful for us to connect that to a thought process that's going through our brain. What's actually happening is a, a neuron is firing, you know, from one place to another in your brain, creating a neural pathway that's creating this emotional, like a chemical release in your body that's creating this emotional environment. And that environment is called anxiety and that and anxiety causes us to do all kinds of things that may or may not be healthy for us. So um, what writing can do for us, the reason that this is an important piece to the puzzle is it can help us access what's really going on in our brains. And again, what you're going to say to me in a conversation, if I'm like, hey, Carrie, why do you feel anxious? You're like, well, there's yeah. just a lot going on. There's bills and there's, you know, people need a lot of things from me and whatever you're going to say to me. Um, but if you sit down to write and you write at the top of the page, why am I anxious? You're going to write something different than you would have said to me because you're accessing a different part of your brain. And what you write on the page will probably be more true than what you would have said to me out loud. And I don't mean more true in the sense that it's like verifiable data and facts. Mm. More true in the sense there is actually a neural pathway that's firing in your brain that's telling you that story or saying that reality to you. You know, um, I have a nine-month-old daughter. And when she was first born, I, I dealt with a lot of postpartum anxiety. I didn't have the postpartum depression as much. But the postpartum anxiety would tell me things like, um, she, you know, she'd, I'd be giving her a bath or whatever. And I'm like, she's going to fall under the water. She's going to get fall. Mm. And I'd have my both of my hands on her. But for whatever reason, the, the, the thought that's firing in my brain is she's going to fall under the water. She's going to fall under the water. And, um, you know, logically in my logical brain, I wouldn't ever say that out loud because I know she's not, but that doesn't mean that there's not that thought that's playing out in my brain. And so when we connect to those thoughts that are actually playing out in our brains, even though they aren't logical, even though they aren't true in the sense that they're actually going to happen, we can do a better job of understanding what is, what, where the anxiety is coming from. We can do a better job of having compassion for it and peeling back the layers and um, usually we can do a better job of lifting ourselves out of the anxiety as well. Hmm. Yeah, that you know, that really does ring intuitive because so much of what lives in my brain is illogical. A lot of people have trouble staring at a blank page. They're like, great, Allie, you've motivated me. Maybe they bought the book. Maybe they just listened to the podcast. They sit down, they're looking at a physical journal. They're on their iPad with their Apple pencil and they're like, crap, I don't yeah. know. Where, where do you start? So, well, writing prompts are, you know, writers oftentimes think I need a writing prompt to get started. But at the, at the face of it, what a writing prompt is, is really a question. So what I tell people do is to have infinite number of writing prompts, like to never run out of writing prompts. Think of the questions that you're asking yourself about your actual life and use those as writing prompts. So questions like, what am I here for? What's my purpose? 
write that at the top of a piece of paper and spend five to 20 minutes responding to it. You'll be shocked that what you write down wouldn't be what you would think you'd write down. It's going to be, it's from a different part of your brain. So it's going to probably surprise you. Um, Or maybe your question is, how can I find a way to serve more people and generate more revenue in my business? Write that question at the top of a page, spend five to 20 minutes responding to it. You might come up with an idea in that five to 20 minute writing session, and it wouldn't be the first time that makes you millions of dollars or that allows you to serve, you know, far more people than you've been able to serve in the past. Um, the question you write down might be, why are things so tense in my marriage? Or you might write down, how can I have better boundaries in my life? Or you might write down, why am I so tired? (laughs) Mm. So the questions that we're already asking ourselves about our, our regular life, the life that we're living can turn into these writing prompts that we can use again, 20 minutes a day, four days in a row. You can think of this as like really simple. It doesn't have to be a super complicated thing. You don't have to write for hours at a time. You don't have to book a cabin away in the woods. Um, 20 minutes a day, four days in a row. The results for that last up to six months. Okay, that's a pattern you've said a number of times. I got to unpack that. 20 minutes a day, four days in a row. What is what is the magic there? What is the the whatever, the the, the inflection point? What, I what wish is, I why knew, that? but that's, it's the way the data, or sorry, the way the studies were set up and really? so that's how the data is communicated in all, in all the research. Um, but I wish I, the, the fact of the matter is the, the data around the power of writing to create meaningful change in our life is very, uh, it's powerful. It's, it's undeniable. It's there. There's, you know, hundreds of research studies that have been done on this, but the why isn't really clear. So in terms of why, why does writing lift our anxiety and why 20 minutes a day and why four days in a row, we don't know the answers to a lot of those questions questions yet. And hopefully someday we will. But for now, um, I'm left to my own experience to guess at why and and to the experience I have working with clients and helping them. And I can make a lot of guesses at why, but but they won't be, you know, they're not, they're not based on factual research. Well, it kind of lets you off the hook because yeah. this idea of journaling, like I've been an on and off journaler for decades now. And I'm like, okay, I got a new book. I'm going at it. And then, you yeah. know, two months later or two weeks later, I'm like, oh, I quit. And then you fail and you think, well, I'm not a journaler. But I guess the idea is you do this for four days, like this today, start today, do it for four days for 20 minutes, and then you can pick it up, what, in a week, a month? Yeah. Like, really? And the other thing too, so for you and for anyone else who's listening who does write for professional reasons, something to consider is that this practice of expressive writing will make you a better writer. Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way, she introduced this idea back in the 70s. I'm definitely not the first person to talk about this, but she has a program called The Artist's Way. One of the things she has you do in that program is what she calls morning pages, which is just writing stream of consciousness for 40 minutes in the morning or three pages, whichever comes first. And the idea there is similar to what I'm talking about here. It just gets you through the garbage that keeps you from fulfilling your purpose here on this planet. It gets you through the garbage that's going to, you know, Stephen Pressfield calls it the resistance, but whatever that like invisible resistance is that keeps us from getting our words on the paper, your morning pages, your expressive writing time clears the path. It clears out all the junk so that you're free and open as a vehicle for um, a meaningful message to come through you to an audience. So especially for those of us who are writing professionally, we need to be carving out this other kind of writing time that, um, you know, I think the challenge for those of us in that boat is to say like, well, I only have an hour a day to write. I don't want to waste that, quote unquote, waste that on writing that I'm not going to share with anyone. And the thing I always tell people is that's like saying, I don't want to waste my time on a plane to Europe to get to a vacation in Europe. It's like, you have to get on the plane, which will not be the sexiest part of the trip, 
But if you don't get on the plane, you never get to the destination. Oh, that's that's so great. And I don't know, you know, I want to be very careful with how I phrase this because there are gender differences and gender similarities, et cetera, et cetera. But a couple of years ago, I really began to notice that women have a much better time as a rule being vulnerable in their writing. And I've kind of put myself as a student of that. And I wonder if that's related to the fact that perhaps women do more journaling than men do. Like I know my wife does being married yeah. for three decades she journals pretty much every day. I do not. And there's something very winsome about being able to share more of who you really are in your writing. Do you think there's a connection there at all? I mean, I think it's conditioning, just like so many other things. Yeah. There are obviously, you know, because of biology, there are differences between genders. Um, but those those differences, I think, maybe are more fluid than we ever thought that they were. And we're seeing a lot of that happen. A lot of that come to light now. Um, but women are definitely cultured in a different way than men are around vulnerability and men are cultured not to be vulnerable because it's not masculine. And, you know, I think the, the, the most powerful, effective male leaders that we're going to see moving forward are going to be men who find a way to access. If you want to call that a feminine quality, you can call it a more feminine, maybe like more like, um, if you think like solar and lunar, like opposite energies, mm. a more lunar kind of energy, a more a lunar way of approaching the world, a more like a gentleness of vulnerability. But the men who can access that are going to be the men who find a path forward in leadership. And the men who continue to resist that as our world changes, I think are going to find themselves, um, I think they're going to find themselves stuck. Yeah. The command and control thing has a shelf life. Yeah, and it does. the invincibility definitely has a shelf life. Yes, I can see that. Um, you you kind of make the argument that writer's block doesn't exist. Seth Godin <laughs> has said that, right? Yeah. Anything you, you've kind of hinted at that, but anything more on writer's block? Because I think I think people experience it as real, even yes. if it isn't. We've all been frustrated. I've written five books. I get it. You hit a wall. Yeah. Any tips for breaking through? Well, uh, the first thing I'll say about writer's block is that I always say writer's block is life block. It's not writer's block, it's life block, meaning that when you're stuck in your writing, there's usually something you want to say or do that you feel you cannot say or do. And that's why you end up stuck on the page, which is amazing because then writing comes this diagnostic tool where you can tune into yourself and diagnose where there are things you want to say or do in your real life that you aren't able to say or do. And then also as you unlock those things on the page, you unlock them in your own life as well. So that's the, I think that's the most important thing to know about writer's block. There's, there's, um, we also have to think about our brains as muscles and just like any muscle, our brain is going to get tired. So if you're writing for six hours a day, or you're trying to write 10,000 words a day or something, there comes a point for any writer, even a very prolific writer, where at the end of that, your brain is just tired and it needs to be re recouped and refreshed. So you've got to stand up, step away from the computer, step away from the page, take some time off, go spend time with your family, go for a walk, do a road activity and disengage the part of your brain that's trying to figure it out and crack the code. And then, you know, your it's your unconscious brain that cracks the code accidentally along the way somewhere. Almost so, always, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's like a simple, a simple um, tool that you can use for overcoming writer's block. But I find the most effective tool to just be a shift of perspective around writer's block that it's not that you don't know the words to say. It's that there's something you want to say that you feel you cannot say. You feel you'll be judged for it. You feel you'll lose something mm. because of it. Um, and when you find a way to say that on the page, it will also unlock that area of your life. 
Well, that's a joy of private writing too. You're not always writing for an audience, right? You can say things, you can express things that maybe nobody will ever read. And that that can be very therapeutic. Um, I love your advice to write now, edit later. That's Mm -hmm. always a temptation, particularly when we're writing for public consumption. Uh, I've heard another leader, I forget who it was, but he said, write FBR fast, bad, and wrong. And (laughs) I've I've discovered that that for first draft, that's some of the best stuff you can do. Just get the brain dump out and don't worry about it. What is the genius behind that? Why why, why FBR? Yeah, I I mean, I think it's because the, the voice in our brain that so desperately wants us to get it perfect is our frontal cortex. And, um, you know, like I mentioned before, our frontal cortex is an incredibly important part of our brain. It's the higher level thinking part of our brain. It's the part of our brain that's going to edit our work when it's done, but it's not necessarily the part of our brain. uh, Well, it's not the part of our brain that's responsible for um, creative thinking, imaginative thinking, you know, connecting to things that would otherwise seem disconnected. And so that the, the higher level thinking part of our brain can actually oddly get in the way of us finding the flow and just allowing the words to come through us. I don't know if you've had this experience, but most writers I talk to have had an experience where you're writing something and you feel like I'm not even really doing this. It's kind of happening to me. Um, All the time. Yeah. I mean, that's, and, and it's been called flow. It's been called all kinds of other things. And athletes have this experience too. Um, Musicians, all kinds of creative people have this experience, but that's what we're really going for. And in order to find that flow, we do have to find a way to disengage that frontal cortex. I think that's why the fast, bad, and wrong works really well because it tells your frontal cortex, like, thanks, I'm not interested in your input right now. I agree. I don't want to over-exaggerate the times I've had that because other times I feel like every word is a cement block, you yeah. know, and like it's yeah. just so heavy and so hard. Yeah. But then there's every once in a while, I think it was, I don't know if it was Rodin or, or Michelangelo or who it was, who said when he's doing a sculpture, he's not actually chiseling away. He's not actually creating a sculpture. He's yes. chiseling away the rock to yes. reveal what was already there. And yes. often I feel when I get into that flow, and it's funny when you're talking about writer's block for this At Your Best book, which I finished up last summer, there was a time in I think in August, where I was working on the back patio, I wanted to throw the entire book into the fire pit. Yeah. And just like, that's it. This one's not going to work. And I got so frustrated. And then literally right after that, it just started to flow. And I'm like, oh, like this and like that and like this and like that. And I rearranged everything. And now I'm like, so thrilled I didn't do that. But it's such a, and, and that can be true of your weekend message. That can be true of a book you're working on, of a vision talk you're giving to inspire people. Like I always think you're, you're most tempted to quit moments before your critical breakthrough. And we are hard on ourselves. We want it to be Pulitzer Pulitzer prize winning, you know? Yeah. I mean, I always tell authors, especially when they're working on their first book, I just say, remember your first book will be your worst book that you ever write. And that's a great thing because let's get your bad one out of the way now. And then it's only up from here. There's sort of like a freedom, I think, in allowing yourself to write badly to start with or to do anything badly to start with. If if you want to be on the path of improving at this craft, you're going to have to start somewhere. You have to start exactly where you are. There's no possible way to skip that or short circuit it. And so, um, yeah, I think there's just a freedom in just allowing yourself to just, just, you know, you do the best you can, but you just get the words on the page. Anything more on the infinity prompt? 
I mean, I, I go into much more detail about the infinity prompt and why it works so well in the book. So I would have people go grab a copy of the book and mm. read that section there. But no, I think, yeah, I think I pretty much covered it for here. Okay. That's great. What about ruts, breaking out of ruts? We all have a style. We all have a template that we fall into, whether that's for personal writing or public writing. Is that a problem or, or how, do you, how do you break out of your typical patterns or should you even bother? Well, it depends on how you want to think about that. But one of the things, one of the ruts I help people break out of all of the time is they're used to writing Instagram captions. They're used to writing blog posts. They're used to writing articles for other publications. They're used to writing emails to their email list or podcast episodes, but they're not used to writing a book because I'm helping people, you know, all day, every day, I'm helping people get books out into Mm -hmm. the world. So when they come to me, they might be very uh, strong writers. They have a really good idea. They've got something they want to get out of the world, a message that feels really important to them, but they feel this block. Like I just, I try to write this book and I can't make any progress. And what's actually getting in their way is that they've learned the format, the short form format of writing an Instagram caption. They've learned the short form format of writing a blog post. And they've done this in repetition over and over and over and over again. And then they're confused why writing a book feels so hard to them. And I tell them a book, a typical trade length book is 55 to 65,000 words. That is more content than you can hold in your brain at once. So it is no wonder that this feels like a gargantuan project to you. And that even writing a chapter of a book, which is about 3,500 to 5,000 words, even that feels big because 5,000 words is longer than most blog posts. So, you know, twice as long or five times as long as most blog posts. So what we have to do is learn how to use the strategies and skills that we already know how to use to write the Instagram post, write the blog post, write the article and translate those skills to a different medium. Now, if you have no interest in writing a book, then there's no need to break that rut and just keep on doing what you're doing and doing it as long as it works. But if I've learned anything about creativity over the years in coaching people who are creatives, it's that we get bored pretty quick. We try one thing, we kind of master it, we're good at it, it's working, and then we're like, what's next? (laughs) And so when you feel like that's what's next feeling, that's the moment when you you might want to start thinking about breaking out of a rut and trying something new. And here's the fascinating thing I think about teaching creativity or whatever you want to call that, that I do is everyone's a beginner. You know, I saw someone say on Twitter the other day, like the craziest thing, there's no other profession like writing books where every time you do it, you're doing it for the first time. And it's really true about almost anything creative that the 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 like invitation and the joke of the creative process is everyone is a beginner. So mm. when you you know have mastered one certain skill and you move on to the next skill to try to master it, it's going to feel like your first day of junior high all over again. It's like all those things that you felt like I don't know how to do this, I don't know where to go, I don't know where my class is. Those feelings expect them to rise to the surface. I just launched a book a couple of months ago, the, the one you're talking about, and I was telling my husband, I'm like, it's so funny. Like your high school self just like pops right up. It's like, am I cool? Am I popular? Does anyone like me? And I'm like, I don't <laughs> feel like okay. that any other time in my life, but launching a book. And every time I launch a book, that's exactly how I feel. So hmm. um, I think it's the gift of the creative process. And it's also kind of the, the, like the universe's little joke to us that don't forget, you're still a beginner. Yeah. Do you think everybody has a book in them, Allie? I think everyone can benefit from sitting down to write about their personal story. Do I think everyone will write a book that will be published to the world and read by many? No, not necessarily. Some people don't even have the desire to do that. But I haven't met a person when you really talk to them who doesn't have the desire to better understand their personal story 
And I think the power of writing it down is that it can help us not only understand, you know, what we've been through, but what we've overcome and how that's changed us and how it's impacted us and who we've become because of that and what kind of legacy we want to leave and what our purpose is in the world. Writing is such a powerful tool to help us wrap our heads around those big questions that I think absolutely anybody on this planet can benefit from the act of writing out their story. So the two main audiences for this show are business leaders and mm-hmm. church leaders. So I'd love for you to, because they're, they're both a particular genre, right? Like business kind of has a jargon and, mm-hmm. and a style and preachers kind of have a jargon and a style. Let's start with business leaders. Okay. Speaking to business leaders for a moment, people who run their own company or in management somewhere or whatever, leading in the corporate organizational, even not-for-profit space, what would you say to them uh, any advice for them in their genre of communication? And then we'll do church leaders next. Yeah. The most important thing a business leader can do is understand their own story and understand how that's impacting what they're trying to do in the world and how it's impacting the business that they're creating. You know, we, in our businesses and in our families and in our communities, we create replications of ourselves. That's just hmm. it, human design. It's how oh. it works. You know, you, your kids become like you and your employees your employees are um, looking to you, learning from you, replicating what you do. And if we don't have a sense of self-awareness around why we do things the way that we do, what kind of environment am I creating? Why am I creating the environment that way? If we aren't in touch with our own pain that we've lived through or our own wounding, then what we end up doing is unconsciously passing on that wound to the people around us. And so I think the most important thing that people in leadership of any kind can do Mm. is understand their own story. It's a responsibility that I think we have for for people around us. I'm like, I just have no patience for leaders who aren't willing to look honestly at their own lives and and really understand what what motivates them and what drives them and why they are the way that they are because they're unconsciously passing on their pain to the people around them. Allie, that's so true. (laughs) My leadership (laughs) life just kind of flashed before my eyes. And (laughs) as I've gotten healthier and I've gotten better, guess what? So is my team. So is my organization. When I was less healthy, more dysfunctional. Everybody paid a price, including, you know, especially the people closest to me. Yes. Such good advice. Anything particularly for preachers? Okay. I have a very personal thing that I want to say to pastors Yes, (laughs) based on my own experience. So this is kind of outside of the realm of writing, but I promised myself, I, 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 uh, was in a marriage with a pastor who was the, the relationship itself was very abusive. And there were a lot of things he was hiding from me. That relationship ended many years ago, and getting out of the relationship was complicated in all the ways that leaving an abusive relationship is. But one of the things that I promised myself after I got out of that situation was that if I ever had the attention of a pastor, <laughs> I would remind him, because usually it's a him, sometimes there are women, but um, to not forget when he's preaching about marriage from the stage that not every marriage looks like his marriage. And that according to the data, 30% of people in your congregation are in uh, will have some sort of violent physical episode in their partnership within the lifetime of the partnership. And that's just really important to remember that there are a lot of women sitting in your audience that when you say fight for your marriage, you know, you've got to support your husband and go back to him, that um, there are women listening to that who may be in dynamics that are just not healthy for them. And, and maybe there are men to her in similar dynamics, but I just promised myself that I would, any pastor willing to listen, that I would remind him of that. Thank you for sharing that. You'll have to meet my wife, Tony. Sometimes she just wrote a book called Before You Split and addresses all the complexity of marriage and the difficulty and unsafe marriages, mostly unhappy ones, but also addresses unsafe. She she would echo that. Oh, great. uh, I I have to read that book. I would love it, I'm sure. 
Uh, we'll get, I'll send you a copy. Okay. That'd be awesome. great. I'd send you a copy. Allie, anything else you want to share? This has been so enlightening. And guess what I'm going to do for the next four days for 20 minutes in the morning? <laughs> right. Seriously. No, I'm going to. Like, this Good. is awesome. You've, you've, you've made a convert right here. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. This has been so fun. What a great conversation. I'm excited to share it with everyone. Yeah, I'm great. Well, the book is called The Power of Writing It Down, A Simple Habit to Unlock Your Brain and Reimagine Your Life. Uh, there's a lot more in it that we can get to, including a whole lot more just on the mind writing connection, which I think is great. And I think every leader, whether you're leading a staff in the marketplace or you're leading a church, I mean, gosh, like anxiety, depression, healing from past trauma, that's like half the work these days. Mm -hmm. And if this helps people, like what a great message to get out in the world. So yeah. thanks for writing the book. Thanks for being a guest, Allie. And it's Thank just been a, a joy to spend some time together. Really appreciate you. Thanks. Well, that's fascinating, isn't it? So uh, full confession, I have not taken up that method. However, I'm off for the month of July. Don't worry. You'll get the podcast. You'll get the blog. You'll get the daily emails. I got a great team. We worked ahead. You're going to get it all. But I'm going to try it in July and just see, see how that works. I love, you know, I think you know the story about this podcast. I'm a little bit selfish in this because I get to benefit having conversations with these leaders. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I I feel like I've grown so much by just having the privilege of doing this with you. So uh, if you want more, you can get show notes at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 427. Next episode, we have David Nurse. Uh, so he has some Toronto connections, my hometown. He's an author and speaker and former NBA coach and the nephew of Nick Nurse from the Toronto Raptors. And he talks about what NBA athletes and Fortune 500 CEOs have in common how to overcome intimidation as a young leader. He's really young and the best way to handle influence when you're young. Here's an excerpt from my conversation with David Nurse. I just said, hey, look, if you want more drills, more than happy to email some over to you. He's like, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Pulls out his business card, hands it to me. I just slip it in my pocket and I'm on my way so I can get like five minutes before the game. And I'm sitting there behind the bench before the game and I pull out this business card. And just so you know, like I live out in Los Angeles, my wife's an actress, but if we saw a famous actor, I would have no idea who it is. And at this time, Shark Tank was not the Shark Tank that everybody knows it is. So this guy wasn't as recognizable. Probably should have known who he was, but I didn't. It said Mark Cuban. So I just been oh my helping gosh. Mark. Yeah, crazy, right? I just been helping Mark Cuban harness his inner power for something he was passionate about. And that's when I realized, whoa, if I hadn't lived in this service mode, I would have passed this guy by completely. Now, Mark, I can text him, I can email him, ask him business advice, and he's just he's he's amazing. He's a great guy. But that's what have never happened if I didn't pour something into him, help him with something he wanted to improve upon. What's super cool about it is I know half the people who listen to this podcast are young leaders like David, which is really, really cool. All right. Also coming up, if you subscribe, we have Alan George, Pete Scazzaro. Really excited for that. David Allen, the legendary getting things done guy. Chris McChesney from the Four Disciplines of Execution. Juliet Funt, Amy Porterfield. Aaron Meyer, who wrote all about Netflix culture, Horst Schultze, and so many more. If you subscribe, you get it for free. And thank you for all the online activity. We are so grateful for you. Letting your friends know, texting them links. We're also on YouTube. That channel is growing for some reason. I don't know why, but it's good news. And uh, we have a lot of these interviews for you on YouTube as well. So you can go and check out the archive or this current episode there. So with all that said, it's time for what I'm thinking about. I want to talk about you and this summer. And I'll tell you a little bit about what I am up to this summer. 
But uh, this brought to you by our partners. Really grateful for the work that MediShare is doing. It's the best alternative to traditional health insurance. Save up to 50% on monthly healthcare costs or more. You can find out what you'll save by going to metashare.com slash carry. And it's brought to you by Generis. If you really want to understand what your potential is and how to grow that as a congregation for generosity, get your free, it's free, Generosity Pulse Report. Go to generis.com slash carry. It's Genesis with an R, G-E-N-E-R-I-S dot com slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y. Well, I am thinking about you this summer. So for the record, I'm actually off. I'm on a beach somewhere. Or I don't know where I am by the time you listen to this episode. And uh, I'm taking all of July off, just completely unplugging. And it's weird. I'm doing it not because I need to. I feel like I don't. As I'm recording this in the middle part of June, I feel great. I feel like I could go for months. And um, that is actually a really good reason to take a month off. Because what it'll do, I know I'm coming into a really intense uh, period when I come back in August. I've got a book launching in September. Launching a book is almost as much or sometimes more work than writing a book. Not quite, but close. And uh, then travel starts up in the fall. Yay for travel. It's back. I'll be on the road again. Not as much as before. We talked about that, but I know it's going to be a really busy season. And so I want to I rest. Plus, I, I want to enjoy my wife. I want to enjoy my kids. I want to get together with friends. And I want my soul to be in a really good place. Now, I know this has been a meat grinder season. I know a lot of you have had it harder than I have. And yet, Uh, There are times where I felt like I was languishing in the words of Adam Grant. There were times where I wasn't sleeping because of the crisis in the last year and a half. So I'm taking the most time off since coronavirus hit and going to enjoy that time. So here are um, some challenges I think that a lot of leaders are facing. And you might be saying, Carrie, that's nice for you. You know, you have the luxury of a team. What about me? I remember talking to Danielle Strickland about this. I think it was actually on this show where I asked her, because she's every time I talk to Danielle, she's like launched a new initiative. She just launched like something to give homes to people who don't have homes in Toronto. And I'm like, wow, every, every time I talk to you, you just launch something new. I said, how do you develop that many leaders? And she said, it's easy, Carrie, just disappear. Um, and she goes, when you disappear, people figure out how to do it. Now I want to make sure my team has enough time off too. Uh, and if you're saying you, you have the luxury of a team, Carrie, yeah, but this started as a hobby And my first team member was a quarter-time executive assistant six years ago. Now there's eight of us, okay? There's eight of us who do this full-time. So, you know, it's a a different world, but you got to start somewhere. And part of that is delegating and giving it over to your team, giving it over to volunteers. And again, before I started this company, I did that in a church. I started as a solo staff member, uh, making next to nothing. And we had no staff. (laughs) We didn't have too many volunteers. And you start from scratch. And you, you're always going to trick yourself into thinking, I can't afford it. I can't afford it. You can't afford not to. And if you want to blow it in this next season of leadership, here's what you should do this summer. Don't take time off to restore yourself. Now, if you're just tired, okay, you, you can respond quickly to cause and effect. You put in a long day, you go to bed, you feel better the next day. Uh, some of you are just tired. Take a bit of time off. Enjoy it. Some of you are fatigued. And fatigued is a level of weariness beyond tired. Fatigue will respond to stimulus. Maybe you need a couple of nights sleep, some more exercise, that kind of thing. But exhausted is where a lot of leaders find themselves. And that's a place where there isn't cause and effect. You go to bed and you still don't feel better the next day or the next week. Those aren't clinical definitions, but I hope they're helpful definitions. And leaders, the more tired you are, the more intentional your plan for recovery should be. 
So why am I taking a month off if I'm not tired? I'm, I'm doing that because I understand I'm human and because I really want to serve the people around me and you well. And I'm taking this, you know, they, they call it, uh, I remember when I was talking to Rob Polinka on this podcast, we were talking about LeBron, he's the uh, general manager of the LA Lakers. We were talking about Le- LeBron James's work that he does on the court. Because we always talk about rehab and recovery. LeBron does prehab. In other words, he invests in himself before the game so he can be strong during the game. And so my month off is prehab. And again, you're going to get everything. You're going to get this podcast. You're going to get this show. We're going to be online. Team's going to be there. And then I'm going to spell them off when they take some time off. And you need to get to a sustainable pace. If self-care is important in normal times, it's 10 times more important right now. And again, if you don't take some time off to really, really get well this summer, you're going to let your fatigue drive your decisions. I don't know about you, I'm a terrible decision maker when I'm tired. I make bad personal decisions. I make bad food decisions. I make bad relationship decisions. I make bad leadership decisions. I won't even do this show as well. If I'm really tired, I don't do a good interview. Now, I try to avoid that. I I prep for these. But man, when your fatigue makes your decision for you, uh, that is a really difficult season to go through. And here's what I'm excited for. And this is why I'm sort of giving you the dad talk, okay? I think this fall... Things are going to be reopened. Um, you know, we got herd immunity, vaccinations happening, travels coming back. The world is reopening. And even in my country, it is in Canada. I'm excited for it. But what it means is you're moving into this whole new era. We did an Instagram poll in June, and it's totally unscientific. But we just asked leaders, do you think you're moving into a new era in leadership? And 91% said yes. And I would agree with the 91%. Yeah, this is not the same old, same old. It's a new era. And you want to be fresh for that. So anyway, we will be here next episode because we worked ahead. Uh, and I will be back in August personally fresh and relaxed. If you want to follow my travels, I'll probably Instagram. Um, uh, Instagram is where I'm personally active a lot. So you can follow me at kerryneuhoff.com. Let me know what you're doing this summer as well on social media. And uh, hey, I'm in your corner. We're going to get through this together. Uh, give yourself a break and get well. And uh, I hope these conversations in the meantime really, really help you. They're certainly helping me. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.